You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, all right. Good to see you guys today. we got a good morning ahead of us. We're going to start into Esther. Esther's a great book. Um, how many of you have read Esther? Cover to cover, a quick little test. All right. If you haven't, don't worry. It's okay. Esther's a book that raises a lot of questions, and we're going to get into them a little bit over these next four weeks. Today, after the Browns beat the Steelers... <clears throat> No booze. Excellent. That was great. I was kind of waiting for a tomato or two, but that's all right. So after the Browns beat the Steelers this afternoon, you're probably going to be online commenting on your friends who've been talking smack or whatever, and you're going to get pulled into some comments, maybe. These are the days of questions and comments, aren't they? No matter what subject is, no matter what the topic might be, there's always questions, there's always comments, and we always have to have something to say. What is that about the days in which we live In all seriousness, some of those questions aren't just about football. They're about deeper issues. Things like this. Should I advocate for what I believe in, or should I just send my thoughts and prayers? Should I post and persuade, or should I let go and let God? (laughs) Should I speak up, or should I just sit down? You ask questions like that in these recent days? Sure you have. I have. And most of the time, those questions come from a very well-meaning place. Like, we really want to honor God with our future, but we also want to see change in our present, don't we? You really trust him for his work in the world, but you somehow feel personally responsible for doing something. We want to believe that God is at work, and we also know that we have a role to play. What is it? What is our role to play in this world? Where does Divine sovereignty and divine providence overlap with human responsibility and my job. Well, welcome to these next four weeks. This is the book of Esther. This is the first week in a quick four-week series just through the book of Esther, and I'm really excited. I'm excited because Esther is a great story. I'm excited because Esther has these wonderful characters and these really great unseen surprise kind of plot twists throughout it. I'm excited because if you know me, you know I love Old Testament narratives, Old Testament stories. But, but more than that, what I'm excited about for these next four weeks for us as a church in the times in which we live, I'm excited because the book of Esther touches on a very timely tension for 2021. How do we walk the tightrope between God's providence and my responsibility. God's sovereign, right? We get that. He's God. We understand that. But how do we turn all that anxiety and fear and shame and worry that we've been talking about these last four weeks, turn them inside out, and then engage our world with confidence and clarity? What does it mean to do that? And so for answers, we're going to drop into a place that probably most of us wouldn't expect. We're going to end up in an ancient Persian courtroom on the other side of the world 2,500 years ago. And so just a couple quick little tips about Esther, just a couple quick hits to get us in the ballpark. Um, Esther is one of only two books in the Bible named after a woman. The other one is Ruth. Esther is the only book in the Bible not to mention God's name. 
But as we'll see, that's pretty intentional. Esther is the only book in the Bible to take place completely in a foreign country, in Persia. None of this happens in Israel. And despite all of that uniqueness, there are more ancient copies of Esther in Hebrew than any other Old Testament book. Esther has been read and reread by the Jewish people a lot, and you'll see why. Esther is a beautiful story. It's written across 10 chapters. You could read the whole thing start to finish in like 20 minutes. It's meant to be read in one sitting. And over these next four weeks, I encourage you, try to at least read Esther just maybe once, just straight through. It's a marvelous story. But as we talk through this idea of God's providence and human responsibility, here's my hope for us, even starting today, that we would look at these ordinary moments of our lives, when we're pulling down on the Amazon app to refresh, where is that delivery? We're scanning through Netflix trying to see what we should watch when we're pulling French fries out of the car seats in our cars. All these little ordinary moments that make up our lives. We look at those as actually profoundly significant for the movement of God. See, Sundays are great. This little hour slice out of your week. Night of worship, that's going to be great. But we have all these other moments that matter, and all of those moments, when we look at them with God's meaning, have all the makings of a movement. And so that's where I want us to go. So this morning, this is just the prologue. We're just going to arrange the characters, just setting the stage. And even in this introductory message today, what I want us to know is that great movements often start in very small moments. So because Old Testament narratives or stories can be kind of unfamiliar territory to most of us, most of us would rather read New Testament stuff, right? That's where we have our Bible studies. That's where we read our devotionals. That's where we kind of hang out, right? So this is a little bit of unfamiliar territory. So I kind of want to give us just three sort of rules for reading Old Testament stories. And I hope this is helpful for you. Um, I hope it's helpful to set the stage for Esther. But then also I hope it equips you kind of in your own Bible reading whenever you find yourself in the Old Testament. Okay, so quick rules. First, Old Testament rule number one, we should resist the urge to read ourselves as the hero. Okay, this one's really tempting, but when reading the Old Testament, there's this really strong temptation to look at the character of this story as the template for the person that I'm supposed to be. And there was a rash of Bible studies that came out a long, like, no, no, not a long time ago, like the 90s, that said things like this, like, dare to be a Daniel in difficult days. Slay the giants of your, faith, of your fear with these five stones of faith, right? Eh. Here's why that's problematic. First off, it's super cheesy. But beyond that, putting myself as the hero misses what I'm actually supposed to see. It actually degenerates and devolves into just like a very self-centered kind of moralism. And I'll walk away from the Bible going, okay, just be more courageous. All right. I guess I get that. All right. If I ever... Meet a group of lions, just pray? What do I do? All right, so it's not about me. There's this really strong temptation to do this with Esther, okay? Because Esther is a great person with profound moral qualities. Like the book is even named after her, right? And you look at Esther and go, oh, I want to be like that. I want to be bold. I want to be available. But Esther is not the point of Esther. Esther's not even the main character in Esther. Esther is not the hero, nor is the book even really about her. There's something deeper that we're going to see, and you'll see that in the coming weeks. So that's Old Testament narrative rule number one. Resist the urge to see yourself as the hero. Old Testament rule number two. We should resist the urge to overlay our culture on this culture. This is where this gets a little bit tricky. 
Esther is a story of how a courageous woman is used by God to preserve an oppressed people. Okay? This has to do with culture. This is a 100% pro-Israel, pro-nationalism story. And I mentioned this because I know a lot of you and a lot of us, rightfully, are asking questions like, what is the role of the church in the country in which the church lives? What is the role of a country in a world? And if we're not too careful, we will overlay our current cultural convictions and our current cultural beliefs onto this culture, and we will miss the point. Esther is 100% unquestionably nationalistic, but it is not nationalistic to, to celebrate nationalism as an idea. It's nationalistic to celebrate God's faithfulness to his people. And so to take our culture and overlay it onto this narrative is like looking at the story of the three little pigs for construction advice. You're missing the point, okay? I only mention that because this pitch has become so loud recently in our world. And I know many of you are asking those kind of questions. And I almost, to be serious, I almost hesitated preaching on Esther because it, 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 it strikes this chord so strongly but we do need to resist the urge to overlay our culture onto this culture. So if I'm not supposed to see myself in here, and I'm not supposed to see my culture in here, what am I supposed to look for? Great question. Glad you asked. Here you go. Old Testament rule number three. Always look for what God is doing. Always look for what God is doing. Any Old Testament narrative, that's the question. Now here's why reading myself or my culture into the Old Testament, or overlaying it, forcing it on, is so unsatisfying. While I may immediately get some good tips for how to live my life, they both miss the same thing. They both, they both miss God. And that's the point. God's word teaches us that this book is God's self-revelation. This is a book that God wrote about himself. This is his self-portrait this is his way of disclosing to us everything that he is. This is where he invites us to learn who he is, to celebrate what he's done, and to discover what he is like. From start to finish, cover to cover, this book has one resounding, all-inclusive idea, and it's this. God does for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's the gospel, and it's hinted at like a whisper here in Esther, and it's ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. And so whether you're reading Old Testament narrative or New Testament gospel, Old Testament poetry, New Testament Paul, our task is the same. Look for what this text reveals about God. Now here's why that's important, especially as we get into Esther. We just finished this series um, really talking through things like anxiety and worry and shame and fear. These are really heavy things. Okay, and here's what this has to do with Esther, because whether or not you're feeling courageous at the moment, whether or not you're feeling shameful at the moment, doesn't matter. Whether or not you're living in a country or a culture that worships God, or you're living in a culture that mocks God as it pushes him to the periphery, it really doesn't matter. Why? Because he is my constant my hope is not my ability within me or the culture around me. My hope is in the God who goes before me. He is the one that we look to. And so anytime you approach Old Testament narrative, we do the same thing that our spiritual ancestors have done, as we're desperate to see who God is. So, all of that is intro. Sweet. No time. 
Let's dive into it. Esther chapter 1, this is 486 B.C. Xerxes has been king on the throne for three years. And to celebrate himself, something that King Xerxes does rather often, he has thrown a five-month bash, a 180-day party, the climax of which is a seven-day feast for the top brass in his courtroom and spilling over into his garden. Let's take a look. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. We've got a lot of text to read today, so buckle up. Here we go. Now, in the days of King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on the royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when those days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods, marble pillars, also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of papyri, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, which means do whatever you want. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So, first things first. King Ahasuerus. Your translation might say King Xerxes. Same dude. In fact, I'm going to say King Xerxes just because it's easier to say. So, King Xerxes. This guy rules everything from India to Ethiopia. That's two million square miles. Just to put that in context, that's like everything from Canton to California. This is a lot of land. This kingdom is the big dog on the ancient world's front porch. This is Persia at its peak. And so Xerxes is three years into what will become a 21-year reign. How did he get here? So when Xerxes is 33, his dad, Darius, is busy planning a military campaign where he's going to go invade Greece. But Darius dies before he gets there. And so he actually hands Xerxes the keys to the kingdom at its peak. He's 33. This is like giving a 16-year-old keys to a fresh-off-the-line 2022 Ferrari with a full tank of gas. Okay? This is Xerxes. He's a king who's young, ambitious, exceptionally well-trained, steeped in Persian culture, and used to getting exactly what he wants, exactly when he wants it. That's him. But what about Queen Vashti? Do you get that little bit at the end of verse 9? Vashti, kind of throwing her own party over here. Do you feel the tension in that? We're meant to. This is God telling us that life in the Persian palace is not as peachy as it may seem. Something is about to happen. There are storm clouds on the horizon, and something is about to break open. What is it? Let's take a look in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine... He commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaca, Zethar, and Carcass, who were those guys, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, 
for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. And there's the crack of lightning from the storm clouds that we saw just a couple minutes ago. There's no way to ignore like what this actually is. Okay, so use your sanctified imaginations a little bit. This is 100% misogynistic, chauvinistic, trophy wifing. This is what he's doing. And if it feels a little repulsive, it's because it should. This is Saturday night in the frat house with a few empty beer cans laying around, and the senior house president calls his girlfriend over to strut through the living room. Like, it's a little disgusting. And it's a little like, why is that even in the Bible? This is the world's wealthiest 35-year-old, more than a little full of himself, flaunting the one piece of property that no one else can have. It's probably good to pull off here for a minute for a quick little Bible study tool. For those of you who are new to studying scripture, here's something you need to know. There is a really big difference between what the Bible endorses and what the Bible records. Okay? This happens all the time, especially in the Old Testament. This scene, actually... Like, it's a little bit, eh, a little racy. This is like Game of Thrones, Jersey Shore, and Animal House all rolled into one. And you're going like, what am I doing reading this on Sunday morning in church? There's a big difference between what God's word endorses and what God's word records. God's word does not endorse this, but it does record it so we can see what he will do over this long 10-chapter arc. So, what happens? Just to summarize the rest of chapter 1 for you, because you could probably see where this is going. Xerxes comes to the conclusion at the not-so-subtle suggestion of a few sycophantic yes-men that he has surrounded himself with that Queen Vashti's refusal is inappropriate. This is not okay. This spurns his authority, and so three quick decisions. First, Vashti is publicly shown the door. Secondly, her title as queen is stripped from her. The text actually says, let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. (laughs) And then third thing, Letters go out in all directions, two million square miles, that say this. Remind each man to be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. (laughs) Okay. Now here's what strikes me about this so far. We're a chapter in, and absolutely nothing about this is holy. There is nothing sacred about anything that we've read so far. Seemingly. God, the one who you came in this building to worship this morning, the one who we just sang to, is not on stage. He doesn't even seem to be like lurking off in the wings somewhere. He's nowhere to be found. So far, this is a secular story about a pagan king ruling in a distant and godless kingdom. And so at this point, we're meant to kind of scratch our heads and go, where is Has this whole thing just gone off the rails? Are people just like ping pong balls bouncing around at the whims of the politically powerful? Ever wonder that? (laughs) Sure you do. We want to see God's movements, but we're stuck in the moment. Get to those places in your life, right? Or something happens in your world, something comes your way, and it seems completely random, and you go, God, where were you? This happened. It's disorienting and it's disheartening. 
Back to the Persian court. Three years go by. There's a three-year gap between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, where Xerxes just sits and simmers for three years. Like, I get bad breakups, but three years, dude, come on. He just sits there. Then he has an idea. How am I going to get a new queen? Beauty contest. I'm serious, like this guy. Here's the scene. Take a look in chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Xerxes had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, look at these brilliant guys, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins into the harem at Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king. No kidding. <laughs> You're getting a really good picture of who Xerxes is and what he values, aren't you? <laughs> So think Miss America times 10, right? All this like surfacey external, like stuff that we're not supposed to focus on. All of that under a giant magnifying glass tied to a literal historical empire-sized crown. Like whoever wins this little contest is going to go down in literal history. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel. Stop for a second. You feel the lens narrow? You feel it focus right there? This is God going, hey, hey, hey. Now there was a Jew in, the Sus- in Susa, the citadel. His name was Mordecai, son of Jair, who'd been, or son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who'd been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away when Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. More on all that in a minute. Don't get lost there. Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, son of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him, that is Haggai, and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of the food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred. That's interesting. For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So we have caring uncle Mordecai and his much younger adopted cousin Esther. We're going to get to them in a minute, but we need a little bit of history um, just to let us know how we got where we are. So let me take a little side road here because you're going to need to remember this for the next few weeks. So 486 B.C., 300 years earlier, God's people were in the promised land. This is the land that he promised to give them and led them to, right? You remember most of the Old Testament points to this. 300 years earlier, there they are, they're enjoying it. Problems arose because they started worshiping foreign gods. 
They worship the God of the Bible, and then they throw in a little Baal and throw in a little Asherah. It can't be that bad. And so instead of defining their culture, they become their culture. And so for 150 years, God sends about a dozen prophets over to him saying, No, don't live like this. Come back to me. I'm the only God who loves you. None of these other gods are going to do anything for you. If you come back to me, you will have blessing and you'll have joy and you'll have satisfaction. And if you don't, you're just going to end up with heartache. Spoiler alert, what happens? Heartache. (laughs) And so God sends a foreign king named Nebuchadnezzar to come and sack Jerusalem and lead people 900 miles away to an exiled existence. This is the dark days of Israel's history. 900 miles away from their homeland. Then after 60 or 70 years of exile, a new king comes to the throne and says, hey, God's people, if you want to go back, you can. Awesome. So some go back, but some stay. Now, this is Mordecai and then Esther. They're still here. Okay. Now, put this on a timeline. That's 60 years of exile 60 more years of staying when they could have gone back. That's a 120-year difference from good old Jerusalem, right? And so expecting Esther to have any cultural memory of what it's like to fear God in the promised land is like asking you to operate a telegraph machine or dance the Charleston. Like, ain't going to happen. That's like 1900 from where we are. That's 120 years ago. She has no idea. Here's the point. Esther is a functional Persian. She's in her world, and she's of her world. She acts this way because she's a part of this culture. And so she complies with this outrageous demand to perform for a pagan king, endure 12 months of ridiculous preparation, all for a one-night stand in a royal bedroom, because she likely doesn't know any different. And in all truth, she probably didn't have much of a choice. So what do we know about Esther? Even though she's beautiful, Esther has three strikes against her. First off, she's Jewish. She's a minority race in a culture that wishes she probably didn't exist. She's Jewish. Second off, she's a woman. In all reality, probably a teenage girl. And you already have a good glimpse of what Persian court culture thinks about them. Third, she's an orphan. Did you pick that up? She's an orphan. And in ancient Persian culture, just like in many cultures, if you don't have parents, you don't have a place. And so on paper, Esther is going nowhere. We're meant to see that right here. Verses 12 through 14 give us an overview of how objectifying this little beauty pageant was going to be. So just listen to this. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Xerxes after being 12 months under the regulation for women, since this is the regular period of beautifying. Six months with oil of myrrh, and then six months with spices and ointments for women. So, you know, 365 days at a spa. Interesting. When the young woman went to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. And in the morning she would return to a second harem in the custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. Kids, if you want to know what that is, ask your parents. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. You can see what this is, right? 
You understand what's happening here. Archaeologists actually excavated the ruins of Xerxes' palace. And I found this in the time that I was studying for this uh, series. It was so fascinating to me that in Xerxes' palace, he actually had a mansion connect to it that was shaped like an L. There's a wall in the middle, but two wings of a mansion that had stairways at the end. And both of those stairways led up into the king's palace. At the bottom of those stairways was a little bit of a guard room because entry into this building, whatever it was, was forbidden, punishable by death. And so archaeologists believe that most likely this is what that harem looked like. You know, you've got one wing, one wing of this harem that's reserved for virgins, and that's under the care of Haggai. You've got this other wing that's reserved for concubines, and that's under the care of Shagaz. The only difference between the two? One night with the king. Not a very inspiring picture, is it? And you do kind of have to wonder here, where's God? Where is God in all of this? Has God taken his hands off the wheel? Almost makes you think like he's just backed out and gone, that's it, I'm just done. I can't deal with this anymore. Whatever promises God made to his people way back over here didn't make the 900-mile journey to Persia, apparently. Whatever he said, whatever he did, whatever he hoped for, whatever he dreamed about, whatever he wanted for his people is now gone, right? Sounds like God giving up on his people when things get tough. Seeing their circumstances and going, nah. Sounds like him. No. If you find yourself wondering that, that's exactly the point. Because if you're looking for evidence that God has given up on you, if you're looking to bolster your belief that he's still moving, And if you're fighting to have faith that he hasn't broken his promise and he still loves his people, following an orphan girl around a pagan kingdom in a king's lust-induced beauty pageant is not where you'd start. You wouldn't start here, and you wouldn't start with her. But is anybody else thankful that God's providence over your life is bigger than your plan for your life? Anybody else thankful that what God wants for you is bigger than what happens to you. And that his movement is not limited just to these little moments. And here's where God's gospel truth beautifully starts to shine through. That no matter what others think of you, no matter what you think of yourself, no matter what amount of shame in your present or sin in your past, no matter what's been done to you or what happens around you, nothing can stop God from doing what he wants to do in your life and through your life. We just get a taste of this here. And even though Esther 1 and 2 is a very dark place, we can start to see this thinly veiled hope start to emerge, as it were, behind a dark curtain of a Persian courtroom, that great movements often start with these small moments. Stage is set. And even though God is strangely silent, watch what happens to happen next. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king. You know what she's doing. Don't sanitize this. She asked for nothing except for what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. 
Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, and when Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the tenth month, seventh month to Beth, seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the other virgins, so that he had set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Well, this works out well, doesn't it? Like, look at this. Esther wins. Story over. And bonus points. Xerxes is feeling so good, he gives everybody a tax break and then a big stimulus package. (laughs) Sorry, too soon? (laughs) But here's the interesting thing about reading Esther. Okay? Half of you are going like, oh my gosh, look at how our God works. Like behind the scenes or not, our God is awesome. I can't wait to see what happens next. And then the other half of you are sitting here going, come on. Xerxes? This dude? Esther, stick up for yourself. How can you capitulate to culture like that? Come on. Are you a child of Persia or are you a child of God? And it is worth noting at this point, to consider how much different Esther is than another biblical character who is exiled, Daniel. Okay, Daniel, as in Daniel and the lion's den, Daniel. As in, king, I'm not going to eat your food, Daniel. As in, I'm not bowing to your statue, Daniel. Daniel's exiled just 100 years or so before this in the same kingdom. He knows Xerxes' dad, Darius. And they behave completely differently. feeling the same cultural pressures, right? But when Daniel refuses the king's food, Esther eats the king's food. Where Daniel reveals his faith, Esther conceals hers. Where Daniel won't bow to the king, Esther actually sleeps with him. Like, what do you do with that? How do you get around that? Biblically, what are we supposed to make of this thing? We'll see more in the coming weeks, but for now, I want to just tie you over with this. The Esther that we see in chapters 1 and 2 of this book, just the prologue, just setting the stage, just the intro, is very different from the Esther who will emerge in the coming weeks. And if you think that a little tax break and some extra cash are her crowning achievements, just wait. (laughs) So that's part one. Now what does God want me to see here? Okay, What is this prologue of an ancient story 2,500 years ago on the other side of the world have to do with me in 2021, okay? Have you ever been in that place where things come to you, things happen to you, and you just go, ugh, what is that? What was that about? It could be with your job, it could be with your family, it could be your marriage that you're desperately trying to keep afloat, it could be kids that have like just gone a wayward trail and you go, God, what are you doing? Those moments are incredibly disheartening, aren't they? I've been there. I remember there's a time for Mandy and I in our marriage, we hit a wall and like we just couldn't get past it. And so we actually took six years off of pastoral ministry to fix stuff that was just deep inside both of us. And God brought a ton of healing. But in the moment, you're just going, ah, right? I remember there's a time when Karsten, our son, was two, and we discovered that he had a, a heart issue, and so his heart rate was over 300 beats per minute for six hours. And so we're going, Lord, what are you doing? Like, how is this possible? Why, why did you bring this to me, God? 
Are you even in control anymore? I thought you were for me. Those are the moments that make up our lives. And on the surface, God doesn't seem to be a part of any of them, does he? God's on mountaintops and fire and smoke and Sunday morning feelings, but he's not at home with me, is he? He's not in the car with me. Esther is written in a way that subtly suggests a different perspective. That God's greatest movements start in these small moments. There is profound beauty hidden in the profoundly common, isn't there? Think about that. I mean, seriously, that the God who spoke and worlds spun from his fingertips, that the God who created Adam out of dust and then breathed his breath in him, that the God who met with his people in the desert and smoke and fire, that same God is moving undetected behind the folds of a curtain in a Persian courtroom. That same God gave permission for the chair on which you now sit to come into existence. That same God is already ahead of you in the ATM line in the Starbucks drive-thru. He's already there. He's sovereign. No question. And so all these seemingly disconnected odds and ends aren't really disconnected at all. They're carefully crafted moments woven together by the unseen hand of a God who's weaving invisible threads through time. This is our God. A God who's not only like high and holy and majestic and awesome and Sovereign and sublime, but who's also involved and who sees you, who knows you, who's conspicuously and conscientiously concerned with you. Never took his hands off a wheel. He's never not in control. And those moments that when strung together, they make for a great glory that the God of the cosmos is the God of the dirty clothes piling up in your laundry room. That the God of angel armies is also the God of -of out-of-date milk in your fridge. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of Doug and of Walt and Sue and Lenny and Bob. Same God. Esther's version of God's providence gives us this beautiful picture of a God who reveals himself when he chooses to, hides himself when he chooses to, but never, ever stops working. And isn't that the great paradox of the Christian faith? Think about Jesus. This is where all this leads. That Jesus chose an ordinary life to save ordinary lives. Isn't that beautiful? That Jesus spent time in a carpenter shop, and he probably got sawdust in his eye. He spent time with fishermen. He probably smelled like one. Jesus felt pain. He stepped into our world to rescue us from our world, becoming like us so that we could become like him. This is how our God does stuff. He never stops working. Persian kings, egotistical though they may be, are not a threat to him. Exiles on the other world, other side of the world are not forgotten by him. You, he knows you. He sees you. He loves you. And he'll never stop, ever. No part of your story is outside of his providential care and love. And so even in these first two chapters of Esther that seems so random and so disconnected, I want to invite you not just to see Esther in this way, but to see your life in this way. You belong to a God who never stops working. We're going to sing a song in just a little bit, and the band's going to come on stage after I pray. It's a song that we've been learning together called Hymn of Heaven. 
And there's this great line in there where it says, with one voice, a thousand generations will sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So Esther had no idea who that would have been. But on this side of history, we know who it is. It's King Jesus. And so one day, we will all stand together. What a wonderful picture that is. And we'll sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy are you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your sovereignty and for your providential care of your people. You have never, ever taken your hands off the wheel. You are always in control for our good, for your glory. And so, Lord, I just ask in these moments, would you just overwhelm us with a sense of your love for us? You're a loving father who watches his children, who cares for us. You lead us like a shepherd. Father, in these weeks with Esther, I pray that you'd open our hearts to see what you'd have us see. Help us to be courageous. Help us to be available. Help us to be open to your movement. Help us to see in those moments what you're doing. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.